This is Jennifer Mueller, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkuscom slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? (laughs) <laughs> Who am I? That's a very profound question. I've been asking myself that for years. <laughs> it turns out uh, my name is Jennifer Mueller. Um, I am a professor. I've been now in this business researching, being a professor, professing for about, gosh, now 20 years. And I got just fell in love with this idea about studying creativity um, when I had the fortune of working with Teresa Mabile in her research lab who's a professor at Harvard Business School and has just been fascinated ever since. Hmm. And uh, so if for those who are listening and like Jennifer Mueller, that name sounds familiar. Um, let me just out put, put introduce the elephant in the room. I owe you a huge debt of gratitude for your research. So uh, I became aware of your paper, The Bias of cre- About Creativity. At some point in its virality, none of its virality is attributed to me. I just added my voice. <laughs> Um, but I became aware of it. I wrote a piece for the website 99U, Why Why Great Ideas Get Rejected. I like that piece. Oh, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Um, well, so that the funny thing is that piece came out, and then a, a through a friend of a friend, um, a TEDx at a university near me, OU, actually my alma mater where I did my grad work, um, needed a speaker on like because of a cancellation. So three weeks out from the event, they called me and they were like, would you be interested in being a speaker? And I sent them three articles from 99U and I said, pick one and I can probably give about a seven minute talk on it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. And it became Why Great Ideas Get Rejected and tens of thousands of views later, a, um, a book on the myths of creativity later, which uses your research again, um, and all of that sort of stuff. I've been like, I got into this mess because of Teresa Immobile, but also because of your work. So I, I owe you a huge debt of gratitude oh. for, for doing it. I'm, I have I, to tell you that I saw that TED talk. It was very weird because I was, you know, just on the internet and I had flirted myself with this idea of you know, TED talks and whatever. And I don't know. And then I was like, huh, bias against creativity. I, I wonder what they're talking about. And that's the first time that I got exposed <laughs> to what you look like. And I was like, well, but what I liked about it is you cited me really in a lovely way. And I really appreciated it, you know, because and uh, yeah, so thank you. Thank you so much for paying attention and reading. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm happy to. And this, you know, it's actually as we uh, as we dive in, there's there actually is I, I think I know what you're getting at, because it's so tempting to avoid a couple fine tuned details from the study. But uh, let's assume there 
there are some people out there that are sort of like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Um, this this wasn't probably your first um, your first big piece of influential research, but I think probably by like view counts and resonance, it's probably been one of the probably been your most um, viral study. Let's say yes. for for yes. those who are unfamiliar with it, let's let's talk a bit about that that study in particular, and then we can get into implications and and actually what you solved in creative change, which is what everyone's always been asking me for. And now I have a book to just say, hey, here, go read this because it's the sequel. Go, go, you can go oh, figure it out. But thank you so <laughs> yeah, no, well, why don't I? T- I'll tell you a little bit of the backstory. So the backstory is, and this is you know not necessarily flattering about me. The backstory is I'm at Wharton and I'm supposed to have this amazing idea, right? I want to keep my job. And I'm like, ah, you know, I, I want to write about this resistance to creativity. And so I started to interview people. And across the board, people would say, creativity is awesome. Or, yeah, creativity is great, but, you know, that's not necessarily what I do. Um, but it was very difficult, if not impossible, to get people to say they hated creativity. And sometimes you got really weird responses. Like this one guy, I will always remember talking to this one manager. And this manager said to me, you know, after I asked him, what role does play creativity play in your everyday work? And this guy was in pharma and he was managing a group of scientists that were making new drugs. And he said to me, um, creativity, I'm not an artist. You know, I have to make sure that these drugs will save patients lives and I can't afford to make mistakes and waste money. So I backpedaled and said, oh, so creativity doesn't really play a role in your everyday life, to which he responded, you know, I take offense to that. I have to be creative. If I'm not pushing the boundaries every day of what we know, people could die. This is the same and, person, and this, this is, is not This is not the star of that new M. Night Shyamalan film about split personality, right? This is a normal, sane, intelligent person, right? This is not somebody who has a mental illness. This is a person who's a manager in an organization and who was really kind of struggling with the creativity and what it means to his work, at least as far as I could tell. And so if you ask people, do they love creativity? They'll say, oh, it's not relevant to me, but it's a fine thing. Or they'll say, of course, well, I love it. And this idea that people would say, oh, creativity, stupid, I hate it. Like, it's just not something that people would admit to. And I struggled and struggled and struggled. And one day I was sitting in a seminar, like, you know, so much of creativity happens, right? It's on uh, this guy who's talking about uh, the Republicans and how they've managed to create pairings between words like liberals and elites. And they're like, liberals are not necessarily elitist. They're about as elitist as, I don't know, conservatives. Like anybody could be an elitist, you know, but how does this pairing happen? They talked about explicitly what people believe and then these implicit associations that can get linked just because you have chronic exposure to things together. You know, kind of like the dog salivates when they hear the bell if you paired it enough. Hmm. And so even even though, you know, does the dog know when, you know, conceptually that the bell equals food? I don't know. But so what can happen in this world of our implicit beliefs is you can have the stuff that you that's very accessible, like the stuff that you believe you think, and then the stuff that lies underneath. And sometimes those attitudes and beliefs are the same. And sometimes they're opposite. And they can be opposite for all kinds of reasons. They can be opposite because you're really kind of embarrassed about what you actually believe. They can be opposite because you're just not aware that you really feel also in this opposite way. 
And I didn't know which it was for creativity, but I suspected that people did have both positive and negative feelings, but the negatives were a bit more complicated. They were more hidden than the positive. And I wanted to test that. So I called Shamul Milwani, my gra- the grad student I was working with at the time, and she had a fabulous idea to use this implicit attitude test, which is a reaction time test, where you have a bunch of words that are synonyms for creativity and a bunch of words that are synonyms for good or bad. We had words for good like peace and uh, heaven and words for bad like vomit and hell and rotten. And we had them tell us, do you love creativity? And then do this reaction time test to pair words like creativity with words like love or words like vomit. Um, And when we first brought undergrads into the laboratory, we found across the board, they all said they love creativity more so than practicality because we had them, we asked them about both. Like creativity was much more interesting than practicality. And implicitly, the reaction time test showed the same. They associated creativity more with heaven and cake than they did with vomit and rotten. And so we started scratching our heads to say, okay, we're not seeing it in this population. And then we started to think, but maybe we could. What if the problem is that sometimes we're in a mindset that prioritizes knowing the answer. So when you talk to a student and you give them a multiple choice test and you say, I want you to be creative, their response is, whoa, what are you talking about? They get very anxious, right? (laughs) There's a best solution. So we wanted to simulate that. So we asked them to write an essay to one of two uh, points. The first point was, um, for every problem, there's one best solution. And the second essay that we had them write was, for every problem, there are multiple solutions. So they were randomly assigned to generate an essay to one of these two statements. And then what we found was pretty interesting. We found that when people wrote about multiple solutions, they explicitly, they said they love creativity. That is on a one to seven scale. They said creativity was really high on that scale, like six to seven. And implicitly, they associated creativity with heaven and love, as we would expect. But when they were told to write an essay substantiating the statement, there's one best solution, They also said they love creativity across the board when we asked them on a one to seven scale, but their reaction time test showed they paired the word creativity more with words like vomit and hell and rotten. And then when he looked at a creative idea, they downgraded it. They said, that's not that creative versus everybody else looked at that same creative idea and rated it at a really, really high on creativity. Um, And so we started to recognize, oh my gosh, okay, A, people might not necessarily be aware of their negative feelings about creativity, but B, there's something about our mindsets that shift whether or not we feel this vomit response to creativity or not. And what's fascinating about that mindset is that mindset that there's one best solution is kind of the mindset we teach our students and our MBAs and executives about how to make decisions generally, right? Meaning that you can measure stuff accurately and make correct decisions and you know that you can assess things and those assessments allow you to rank order stuff to say that one's the best that one's not so good you can generate risk assessments that and and we've later now shown that this mindset is literally something you can evoke by literally giving somebody a manager role put someone in a manager (laughs) role or a leader role where their responsibility is to allocate scarce resources and that's a responsibility all of a sudden 
it evokes this belief system. Yes, there's a best solution. I can tell. I can measure stuff. I can know. And if something has metrics that aren't so good, it means it's bad. And something is good, it means it has great metrics. And the great irony is that creative ideas don't have great metrics. Or if they do, it might be simply a function of people like to follow the crowd and the idea is too new for everybody to recognize it's bad. <laughs> you know? So metrics are actually a really noisy indicator for really new ideas, even though they're a great indicator for familiar ideas. And so we stumbled across the way we're teaching students even academics in our field, experts, MBAs, to evaluate ideas and choose which ones to go for. It's that way where we're doing that is evoking this bias against creativity, the very thing that in many cases they want. Well, and this is, you know, I've been more recently been beating this drum. This is a, a bigger issue than even sort of idea recognition, right? So, so much yeah. of management and leadership literature was based on a time that didn't really need that much creativity. I mean, it did, but you had R&D and engineering and marketing and like that was it. And everybody else, they had a routine task to do every day and we called it a job and managing it was easy <laughs> because metrics were easy because it's how many widgets per day according to the plan do you produce. And yeah, there, I mean, there were places like Bell Labs, et cetera, but most people had that kind of routine metric-based job. And you know, we built, you, you already hinted at it, but we built the business school curriculum for MBAs based off of that, those ideas. Yes. And now we live in a different world. We do. We do. And what you get is the MBA saying creativity, that's what, you know, only a small number of people, that's what the artists do. Managers don't do creativity. Uh, leaders don't do creativity, um, or they can buy their creativity. And that's where the recognition comes in. That the, the idea is that if I'm a leader, I can just buy it. I can get a, an employee who's creative. And the problem that I've been saying is, ah, but can you recognize value in the new? Because this belief system that comes around rational efficiency and, you know, I can measure stuff and I can know the answers. Um, and I can justify my decision. Knowing the answers is important. Because you want to make accurate decisions, you want to justify them if they fail. Um, but it's that exact way of thinking that means that when you see a creative idea, it can't be great by definition because you just don't know enough about it. And knowing something about the idea helps you determine if it's great. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and a, a blind faith that we could recognize the value of an idea, even one we're paying for just through an Excel spreadsheet is, is a really <laughs> misplaced faith. I love that you said, you know, just just by putting uh, someone in a manager hat, we, we suddenly change and make it way easier for them to reject these new ideas. It, re it reminds me of, uh, it was a follow-up study of yours looking at managers sort of consistently rejecting the ideas that customers of same company said would be great ideas and new services and new products and that sort of a thing. Yeah, that was a wild, wild data. It was one study. It was one company, rather. And we got a hold of all their proprietary ideas before they had been implemented and had these ideas rated by customers and the managers themselves. And we found something really crazy, that the managers believed the ideas that were really creative were the ideas that other people didn't think were so creative. And further, creativity itself predicted whether or not customers wanted the idea. The feasibility of the idea was negatively related to whether or not customers wanted the idea. And the managers themselves chose the less creative ideas, even though everybody else in the organization believed they would be less profitable. They chose the, they chose the feasible and familiar ideas. 
and, and ideas that lacked creativity. So literally what we found was creative ideas are less likely to be easy to implement because the idea has a different requires a different skill set of people to make it, or it's just not necessarily readily available in house. Um, and people, the decision makers are making choices like least path, the path of least resistance to choose ideas that are low hanging fruit, easily implementable that are presumably going to make money because they're cheap to implement. And it turned out in that case, the customers didn't want any more of those ideas <laughs> to begin with. They wanted the new products. Well, so this, this always hints at a, a follow-up question that I've always wanted to ask you. And so now I get to, um, I think I already know the answer, but it'll make for good conversation anyway. Is, <laughs> is this just like, so sometimes, you know, the management role, I tend to believe that as soon as somebody enters a management role, especially a senior leadership role, their sort of number one priority, even if they won't say it is just not get fired from their sweet mm -hmm. gig. You know, now they make, they've got money, they got the company car or the special parking space or whatever. And a lot of it is just, I don't want to invest in that risky idea because I don't want to get fired. Is it, is it that, is there something deeper in terms of their mental model going on for why that manager role especially is one that overvalues feasibility and, and devalues creativity? I do think that there's a lot of that, that we structure organizations to systematically kill and root out all newness because that's what standardization means. Um, and so new equals error in that model and way of thinking. But there's even a deeper, what we found in our studies is that even when we make both people with decision-making responsibility accountable for their decisions and those without decision-making responsibility. So in other words, when you're accountable, you got to justify why you decided to choose one way versus another. So um, even when we make accountability consistent for, for people with responsibility to make decisions and not, we still find that the people with the power to allocate resources feel responsible. They feel the sense of like, you know, they need to make a good decision because it's on their shoulders. It's like they're, they have to be correct. Hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. they, it's not, ju the justification is also a part of it, but it's also something about just wanting to make good and accurate decisions because you want to do good. So in other words, one way to see it is, you know, managers are just kind of self-serving. Another way to see it is they really actually want to make great and good decisions and do the right thing. Well, and this would sort of explain why uh, in some of the studies that one of the variables was uncertainty and an uncertainty condition, which would make sense, if, especially if you view your role as you're responsible for taking care of these people, for make, for seeing the organization through this period of uncertainty, you are, you're much more likely to grip on to things that you can prove with the spreadsheets that we in business school taught you how to use. Yes. And, you know, and the one, the, the step that one step beyond that is in addition to that is to say, if something I can, if I can measure something, if I know I can measure it, that means it's creative. Hmm. If I can't measure it, it means it's not creative. Because what happens when you're in that mindset, your definition of creativity shifts hmm. to accommodate the kind of pressures and responsibility and accountability that you feel. So it's literally that managers, when you say to them, you're not being creative, they're like, what are you talking about? I'm choosing really innovative ideas. <laughs> you know, so I think part of what's happening is people are using this word creativity and 
you know, as Inigo Matoyo in that, that wonderful Princess Bride movie <laughs> says, you know, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> and I think to a certain extent that's happening a lot in organizations that because I think the problem is managers have not been trained. And by the way, people in our field, David, like academics, they haven't been trained either. Experts haven't been trained when novelty hits their plate, how to manage their own feelings of, oh, whoa, whoa, wait, what does this mean? And they know how to use their expertise, but there's a lot of that we don't know about new ideas. Do you know? There just there just is. And how to manage your feelings when you encounter that is, I think, what what we don't talk about and we don't we don't talk about skill sets to get people to feel the positive as opposed to just the negative when that happens. Well, and, and in some cases, that expertise leads them to judge new ideas against like very similar things that already didn't work and kind of not appreciate the subtleties and go, well, we tried something similar to that already. I remember that. It was five years ago, but I was still here and I remember it. And it's this, therefore, this idea won't even work because it's so similar to the other one. And it might be that subtlety that actually makes it a crazy idea that works, not just a crazy idea. Yeah. And the other side of it is when you see this mindset, this, I have to have the best solution, this best practice, you know, there's one, I think there's actually a New York Times bestseller. There's the one thing or the best thing. I think that's actually the title. Of it. Oh yeah. No, it's like every <laughs> airport bookstore I've ever right. encountered as and we speak. Yeah. That's the problem. And it makes it so that you can't see value in the new and it makes you feel really certain about your choices. You know, because you're like, look, this is this isn't the best. The metrics don't work. Uh, so, so, and it's also very. It, it does help you make decisions when you have normal kinds of change. When you need to implement a change that you know a lot about, other companies have done, you've done before. You, you know, that kind of framework of thinking works really well for basic change management. That's the other irony that it's not totally bogus. It's just diff, it just totally counterproductive when you want creativity. So, you know, I think we've we've explained to everyone why they feel the paranoia or why they feel the dread when someone says think outside the box and you, <laughs> and you know that they really mean get in your little box and don't disturb us. But but now we have a now we have a bigger task, right? So so I I wrote about your research in my in the first book The Myth of Creativity and I called it the mousetrap myth from this idea that like we think we're great at recognizing great ideas. We think that if we build a better mousetrap the world will be the path to our door, but the truth is they'll hate it, right? And they'll they'll reject it. And and one of the most common questions I got uh, after publishing that book, and even in you know the, the TEDx talk, why great ideas get rejected, was people would go, "Okay, cool. Well, how do we solve it?" <laughs> and I was always kind of be like, "Well, I don't know that. You know, we haven't done research on that yet, but I do know we've got a problem." And and that's the first step. And, w and while that's a really good answer, what I love about the new book, Creative Change, is it kind of it kind of takes that approach. There's a couple different uh, mental shifts that need to happen and even sort of a framework that you introduce for like knowing this, if you're in this type of role, here's how you can actually at least make it more likely that you'll stumble upon a creative idea and, and then advance that creative idea and have success with it. Yeah. And I have to tell you, writing that was terrifying for me. So, <laughs> so you understand the pocket protector, I have to be accurate and I have to represent my data 
accurately and correctly that academics have, right? Oh, no, totally. Yeah. So, so my book editor, who is also your book editor, shout out to yes. Rick Wolf, um, is one of those guys that's, that's kind of the opposite. Like, well, we just, you know, it needs to be a good story. And as long as you're true to the research, like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, I'm, I'm going to get cornered at the Academy of Management if I don't get this right. <laughs> so I have to introduce that little subtlety. And I know it takes four extra sentences to explain it, but it has to be in there to stay true to the research. Oh, yeah. No, I totally get it. Exactly. But I think that's been holding our field of creativity and innovation back. I think literally our field of creativity and innovation, when people like, I don't know, Jing Zhao, who you may have also written about her work before, she mm -hmm. just did a review chapter. And in that review chapter, it says there have been no major changes in the theory of creativity for the last several decades. Like that's a Astounding. People in the field of creativity are starting to recognize, we've, they've been talking a lot about how to generate ideas, but the theory about how people embrace them and make change, that has not necessarily been connected to this theory of, of creativity generally that the field has developed. And furthermore, the field of innovation hasn't necessarily connected to creativity, this, this triangle of creativity, leadership, and change. And so you know, there wasn't really theory out there about it that was readily available. So what I did was I started to look at different literatures and cobble together almost like a theory paper um, that developed these solutions from the theory. And that was terrifying. So <laughs> that's it too, you know. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And, and by the way, thank you for explaining the, the triangle of creativity, leadership, and change. One of the other questions I get often, you know, the podcast is about the intersection of leadership and innovation. And everybody always asks, why'd you pick those two things? They're so different. Like, no, they're actually all there is. Right. <laughs> totally. I totally agree. And I think what was astounding to me, you probably have seen and talked about that IBM study um, that where they looked at 1500 executives and they asked them, you know, what's the key skill you need to succeed? And they say creativity, right? That's the number one key. This was, I think, this was a study done in 2010. And so creativity is the number one skill. That's all great. But the fine print of this is over 50% of all these executives said they struggled with this exact skill. And what was this skill? They said disrupting the way they think, tolerating uncertainty and ambiguity, and moving the organization in a new direction that might disrupt the old. Hmm. Those were the way they defined creativity, which was interesting because that's not necessarily the way you or I, when we put our research hat on, define creativity, you know, and, and that's the other piece that I stumbled on was this definition of what creativity is in our field. It's a novel and useful idea. And where I wanted to go was let's link it back to the psychology of what it means to, to recognize something creative, which means you go from one way of thinking of something to some way that's new, that may seem even opposite the old. And the second step to that for creative change is that you actually embrace it. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's it's one of there's a lot of sort of trite quotes out there on you know Instagram about how it's not about ideas. It's about execution, et cetera. Yeah. And, th and that's really what we're talking about is it's one thing to generate a bunch of ideas. It's a whole other thing to make that change happen to actually do it. So um, yeah. I don't know. This is a really broad question. How or at least where do we start in, in making this change? Well, I would say the execution piece, there's that step before is that commitment to actually then execute. It's that decision. It's the saying yes. It's the, it, you know, and so I think the place to start, in my view, if, if we can start to open up 
the ability for decision makers to say yes to maybe even 10% more of novel ideas out there. Because they're not going to know. The bottom line is those decision makers, once hopefully they read this book and your work and they recognize, they can't know these answers. And their companies are smart enough to recognize, you know, holding them accountable for not something that nobody can know is not going to help us, you know, and they start to get a sense that the execution isn't something like, boom, now we're going to execute this. The execution is this long ongoing experiment of trying to kind of lean startup stuff, I think is a really good methodology to use that where the lean startup doesn't talk about, though, is getting those gatekeepers to say, yes, how does that happen? So that's my thought is. My contribution, if there is one in this book, is how do you get yourself as a gatekeeper or other people as gatekeepers to open up the possibility for novelty as opposed to all checks and no balances for, for novelty? Hmm. And in, I mean, in that, I, I want to make sure in the time that we have that you also talk about, uh, I'm, for, I'm, I'm forgetting the acronym. I, I, it's either oh it's fat or no, it's fab. Here, I found it. It's not fat. <laughs> Okay. It's not fat, it's not right? Fat. Fat, fab <laughs> with a B for those fab that are listening. Like absolutely fab. Um, absolutely fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a it's a really useful framework for some of this for for kind of making that shift yourself, but also for getting past the gatekeeper if you're in that role, or getting past yourself if you are the gatekeeper. Can can we can we dive a little bit into what that um, model is all about? Would love to. Um, the, the, the F in fab is supposed to be about fit and fit means knowing the model or belief system about creativity your audience has. So Chinese people, what do they think creativity is? Well, you darn well better know that before trying to pitch a new product to them. And it turns out because it turns out that some of the things they think mean creativity mean the opposite, are the opposite for people in the U.S. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, Apple had their Apple Watch, which they called the first mass market wearable. To a Chinese audience, that kind of marketing is, marketing is a perfect fit because it fits with their view of creativity because they believe mass market equals something is more creative and it fits with their view of Apple, which they also believe you know, is the, the apex of creativity. You get this feeling of fit and people feel safe and they feel good. Um, take an American audience though. To the average American, we found that mass market equals the opposite of creativity. It equals not creative. Hmm. So what you have is by market, by Apple marketing their next creative you know, product, this watch is a mass market wearable. They've now killed fit. Because it looks weird. Like, why would Apple do something that's mass market? Aren't they all about individualism and think different? Hmm. And mass market to them is a violation of that and makes them think. The problem with the thing about fit is when you have fit, people feel safe. When you have misfit, they don't feel safe. They feel something's wrong. They can't necessarily articulate it. They're not going to talk about it like that. But that's this underlying implicit feeling they get. So the first thing is to know the mental model of creativity you're working with and make sure however you're pitching the idea fits that. So if you are a person, an entrepreneur pitching to a decision maker who's one of those ha typical how best people, they want solutions, they want metrics, and they want your metrics to look better than the status quo. That's what they want. That's their version of fit, not only for a good product, but in some ways a creative one. Yes, it has to be different, but it also the difference has to be the metrics have to be better 
Do you know what I'm saying? It doesn't need to be a breakthrough for them to have that fit of, ooh, that's creative, that's interesting, that's cool for me, for the how best decision maker. Hmm. Um, The second piece to this is what I called aha strategies. And aha strategies really emerged, and I have to give credit to Jeff Lonestein and and Matt Cronin, because they have come up with a, a way to simplify the mechanisms behind how we generate ideas. And Jeff and I then thought to reverse engineer that to talk about how you take those mechanisms and turn them into how you pitch ideas. So combining two things that may seem the opposite to pitch an idea um, or uh, um, using an analogy. So an example of a combination would be um, what movie executives often do. You know, Aliens was Jaws in space, for example. You're combining two things that may seem opposite, but they give an immediate quick picture and all of a sudden people get it. Hmm. And sometimes our creative ideas are difficult to get. And the reason why people don't like them is they don't kind of understand exactly what they mean. Um, And so giving them that analogy. So, for example, um, Paige Moreau did this study where she looked at it that... um, how people were evaluating at the time the digital camera came out, how experts were evaluating digital camera versus, uh, sorry, experts in film were evaluating the digital camera relative to novices. And they found the experts in film hated the digital camera because the digital camera didn't require dark rooms and Hmm. film speed. The things they thought were critical to quality of the picture but the novice loved the digital camera because because it didn't require dark rooms or film speed because it wasn't <laughs> complicated. But what was interesting about this study is that as soon as you got a person with expertise in film and in scanner technology, they started to love the digital camera. So in part to them, the analogy was, you know, this is a camera like a scanner. You know, hmm. so for them, they're like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. Of course, it's not going to have a dark room. It's a scanner. This and is I, sort of I, too why we make fun of Uber for X. Like everybody in the startup world is currently saying, well, we're like Uber, but for it's actually a brilliant way to pitch your idea. It is. It is. And, and you know, I actually, I know Adam Grant in his book Originals, or at least some of the writings he has, had talked about that strategy. Um, and I think it's a really great idea, um, except if you're pitching yogurt. <laughs> 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 it will not work for everything there are some things it'll work for tech but if you pitch it for other things you're not going to get that fit it's going to feel weird yeah agreed so the fit is important so anyways reverse engineering people's psychology to help them feel that fit for complicated things by understanding really where they're coming from and this means you really, really need to understand what they don't know, what they do know, where that disconnect is to help connect with them. And that's where B comes in, broaden. So the B was really about helping develop sort of strategies to get the person to want the new in the first place, to broaden out of the status quo. Because the status quo feels really good, we like it, and I think the whole point of fab is that if you use typical selling techniques, they're not going to work for creative ideas. Because if, unless, if you just give metrics and compare them to the status quo, the status quo always look better. They will just, it's been around for a long time. Lots of people use it. It just looks great. And making that comparison evokes what we call the status quo 
bias. So how do you get people away from the status quo? And these are why these techniques are useful. And this last one broad focuses on sort of putting people in a different mindset. And one of the the strategies that I talk about there is what I call the feedback pitch. And the feedback pitch was developed, I developed this over many years of studying how people seek help in organizations. And what I found was that help seeking actually helped them generate great ideas, but it wasn't so great in terms of helping others perceive that you knew what you were doing. Hmm. Um, so one of the things, because if you say, yeah, I failed on this, I failed on this, it's great because now that person knows not to recommend those courses of actions where you fail, they recommend something new. But when you're pitching an idea, I think our instinct is to try to unilaterally convince them and sell them and give them information. And that doesn't work because you, to do, well, to, for that to work, you'd really have to understand the person's objections, what they know, what they don't know, their expertise, and how it could get in the way of them understanding the idea. Um, and for every person, because this is a new idea, it might be different. You can't guarantee they're all going to have the same kind of concern because each person has a different perspective. So one thing you might want to do with a decision maker, if you can get them in the water cooler and have an informal conversation, is what I call this feedback pitch. And the first question to ask is, what do you think? But let, not not a not a not a a targeted question because you want to give them an open framework to talk about whatever it is is on their mind. And after the what do you think is the key point is then to ask for their advice about what do you think I should do? Because they're going to mention several problems. And the next stage of that is to try to get them in a collaboration to help overcome those concerns. And sometimes in my work, I find that all it takes is a small tweak to the idea because people, it turns out, love their own ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and if you can make a tweak to that person's idea, by asking for their advice and incorporating that feedback later in a way that doesn't make the idea itself less creative. Because a lot of times decision makers will just say, okay, yeah, why don't you do what everybody else does and lower costs or, you know, scale at mass or whatever. And that's just not your game. You take those objections and you try to find a piece of it and integrate it in. It could be superficially and then say, you know, hey, I made this change. This was, this was a great idea you had. What do you think again? And it's possible that their impression of that idea will have shifted because now in some ways they have a psychological ownership for it. Hmm. I think that's really, really good. And, it, and it's sort of a, I mean, it's almost like uh, intellectual jujitsu, right? You get a little <laughs> foothold in, you use some leverage. Now you're working their idea against them and boom, you've got that acceptance. And I think it's, you know, it, I, I think it's something that a lot of people need to experiment with. I mean, when when the research, the bias against creativity, when that paper came out, it was sort of a, um, it was sort of a warm blanket to all of those people who have been burned trying to advance a creative idea, right? It was kind of like a take, you know, those like, you see them in movies after the, after they've recovered from the Godzilla attack, there's the ambulances with passing out the warm blankets <laughs> it was sort of like that like it's okay we have an explanation we know why but then yeah. you're still like well i've still got to go slay the demon right i've still got to go yeah. kill the the godzilla so um that's what i love about creative change uh the full the full title by the way i haven't, I haven't even said it on the show yet because i've been so excited creative change why we resist it and how we can embrace it which i think is a, is a huge one so i highly encourage people to check the book out for that if you if you've seen my talk if you read her paper if you're familiar with this idea or or if you just tried to pitch a great idea and got rejected you know 
that a lot of uh, a lot of what we say we want is not actually what we want when it comes to creativity. And Jennifer's taken the time, and some of it was probably being convinced to have to take the time and explain that how do we solve it. And I love this book; it's a great explanation for that. But. Jennifer, you know what's coming next. We, I want to switch a little bit from the book and the ideas in there and ask you some questions specifically. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Yeah. What's the best advice you've ever received? <laughs> I know. We're just going big right from the top. They don't. By the way, they don't get any easier than this. What's the oh, best advice you've wow. ever received? Well, there's so many aspects of my life, you know, that I could that I could I could I could apply this to. I mean, I, I, this this might sound, you know mundane, but I think that the best advice that I ever received was, you know, follow your passion. And the second best advice I ever received when I followed my passion and it didn't work was, um, follow your passion, but try to follow the thing you're passionate about that will help you succeed. And if that doesn't work, (laughs) try to reinvent it. (laughs) (laughs) Follow your passion. Unless your passion is being unemployed, then pick a new passion. Well, it's sort of like this issue of grit, but, you know, Angela Duckworth's work on grit, I love, but the, there's a dark side of grit, which is banging your head against a wall, you know, following the failed course of action. And so the other side of that is how do you then reinvent yourself when you know you can't just bang your head against the wall anymore so that you can use that grit to good effect? I think that's, that's really the part that's been the most helpful. Both, both pieces are important. Both. That's, that's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. So, um, You've done a lot of amazing work, a lot of great research. What does an ideal work day look like for you? Oh, boy. Well, um, after walking the dog, uh, <laughs> getting that over with, then, and he didn't bite anybody and didn't have a bad day. Um, <laughs> really, the ideal work day is, you know, working with students. And, and, and if, I, if I were to have that moment of feeling like, oh, I feel exhausted by the end of the day, that's when I know I had a good day. No, that's, I mean, yeah, there's something to that. We need like, a, we don't have a word in English for it. I'm sure that like German or they have a word for everything. <laughs> um, I'm yeah. sh- I, tried, I tried to take German once. I took three semesters of German in college and that's the problem. There's a word for everything. A word yeah. for that idea of like exhaustion but satisfaction at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'll ask my father. He's German. He's a, you know, he, know, he speaks German. Ah, perfect. I'll ask him. Perfect. I'll, I'll email you and let you know what it is. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> um, what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? Well, I'm a sci-fi crazy person. So um, I always read sci-fi. Um, Brandon Sanderson, um, I'm reading some of his Mistborn novels right now. Um, I'm also, let's see, what else am I reading? I think right now that's what I'm reading, if truth be told. And I also, by the way, read The New Yorker, but also I read People Magazine, but don't tell anyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Reminds me of that um, that Jim Gaffigan line about McDonald's, where it's like everybody's got your McDonald's, right? You might not eat at McDonald's, but like, do you do you read National Enquirer or People Magazine? Like, that's your McDonald's. Just get over oh, it. Like, we all have our so McDonald's. True. It's fine so though. We all, we, yeah, we all, we all need that. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, what do you believe that most people don't? What do I believe that most people do not? Exactly. Or that, or that you get the impression most people would think you're crazy if you said it out loud. Oh, boy. I believe that the smartest, best experts in the world, when, and they are real with themselves when they get a breakthrough paper, have this moment of terror and think, oh, my God, I have no idea. Hmm. I have no idea. That's what I believe. 
Oh, I think that's that's a great one. That it sort of reminds me of that. There's I forget who said it, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but this this idea that like um, great advancements in science aren't met with the exclaim of eureka, they're met with the question of that's funny. Like why yeah. why did that happen exactly? Funny, ha ha, or funny. Yeah, well, maybe Ew. a little, maybe a little both, maybe <laughs> a little bit of both. Question, yeah. So so final final question. The the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? What makes this is a wonderful question. I teach leadership, and one thing I notice is that so few people have the same definition of leadership. There's so many Not sort of like ways creativity, that, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but great leader to me, I think a lot of leaders can have vision, but it turns out creative change, in my view, means that you can lead a company using a vision that company has always used. Sometimes we call them values. Sometimes we'll call them, you know, our, our just core capabilities. But the point of this is that, or strategy even, but you can make changes within those, right? You can be more efficient. You can, you know, diminish costs. You can do more of what you've always been doing. And, and that is change. And to, to do and to lead that kind of change, your how best thinking is fine. That's your mindset that prioritizes correctness and accuracy. But when it comes to having to make a creative change, your company isn't doing so well, you need to pivot, there's a new market opportunity, that kind of leadership does not work. And we haven't trained leaders about how to do this other kind of skill, this creativity skill, this disrupting their own thinking, their the subordinates thinking, the organization's direction, and that piece of things. And what's amazing about that is that the classics talk about that being the critical differentiator for leadership, hmm. and yet the scholars haven't really talked about it. Um, it you know, I don't it, know. Do you interesting? Agree? No, I, I do. I do agree. I, I think we should probably get working on the proposal for your second book. Um, yeah, because <laughs> there's a lot there. To, there's a lot there to say, but I definitely. I definitely agree. And I think, I mean, it ties back to a lot of what we've been talking about, the shifts that are going on in the type of work that we're doing in the, in the management structures, the shifts in education that need to happen to solve it. There's a, there's a lot there to unpack, but we're out of time. So, so, yeah. um, in, in the meantime, in the meantime, the, the current book, Solving Problem One and Uncovering Problem Two, the Solving Problem One, the book again is Creative Change, Why We Resist It and How We Can Embrace It. We'll have a link to that as well as uh, the original paper, The Bias Against Creativity, and a bunch of other things from Jennifer's work on the show notes for this page at davidberkuscom slash podcast. So check that out. In the meantime, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thank you, David. I so appreciate being here. It's so wonderful to speak to somebody who's really helped push a lot of ideas and helped build creative change in a lot of people's repertoires. Thank you.